Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Tides of History early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. The pen scratched its way across the page, then paused, the sound replaced by the burbling of water and the tweets and calls of songbirds. The pen's nib clicked against the edge of the inkwell, then resumed its scratching, word after word after word. Even here in the shade of a lovely portico, looking out onto a magnificent garden and a collection of cooling fountains, Extremadura in late August of 1558 was hot. Papers shuffled and rustled in the slight breeze, which offered welcome relief from the summer heat. The aged man sitting at the table, busily scratching away with the pen, was thankful for the wind. He had turned 58 earlier in the year, but looked older than he was. Decades of riding, fighting, campaigning, and hunting, stress and strain, hard decisions and mistakes had all taken their toll. His hair and close-cropped beard were streaked through with white. His teeth, blackened and rotting, pained him constantly. So did a leg injury acquired on a hunt some 20 years before that had never healed correctly. He limped just a bit everywhere he went when he could walk at all. The King of Castile, Aragon, and Naples, Count of Flanders, Duke of Burgundy, and Holy Roman Emperor had never enjoyed the proper downtime for injuries like that to heal. At least not before now. He was no longer the king, no longer the emperor. Now he was simply Charles, and he was retired. This lovely monastery, tucked away in the rocky hills of Extremadura, was his home. Less an austere retreat than a palace, something that suited a man who had once ruled more of Europe than anybody since the days of the Roman emperors. A buzzing sound alerted Charles to the presence of an insect. He slapped at his neck, crushing a mosquito under his bandaged palm, and regretted the gesture. His gout was flaring up again, painfully, hence the bandages. But Charles paused only for a moment, then took up the pen once again. The nib again scratched away across the paper. These memoirs could not wait. Charles wanted posterity to know what he had done during his decades as Europe's central political figure. As if anybody could ever forget. Hi, everybody. From Wondery, welcome to another episode of Tides of History. I'm Patrick Wyman. Thanks for joining me. Charles V was Europe's central political figure in the first half of the 16th century. He was the sun around whom everything else orbited. At first, he was the heir, the ruler in waiting, claiming his lands one by one as his illustrious ancestors and predecessors died. By the time he was 20 years old, through very little doing of his own, his territories had become impossibly vast. Spain, Naples, Sicily, the Netherlands, and a looser rule over the Holy Roman Empire. That was more than any medieval European ruler had controlled since Charlemagne, more than Richard the Lionheart, more than Frederick Barbarossa, more than Henry V. It's not surprising that the young Charles and his advisors embraced an ideal of an all-encompassing empire. This was something deeply rooted in the ideals of the Christian Middle Ages, which found its expression in the Pope's pretensions and claims to universal monarchy. Rooted in the past, but looking forward to and shaping the future. That was Charles in a nutshell. 
And like Europe as a whole in this period, his story is less of a straightforward, uninterrupted rise and fall than a kind of neck-breaking, whip-lashing back and forth between momentary triumph and utter disaster. In the end, Charles was too big to fail completely. He fought incessantly for decades, he spent enormous sums of money doing so, and he desperately clung on as he tried to set the stage for his heirs. To put all my analytical cards on the table here, that's what I think defines Europe of this period as a whole, and it's why I think Charles is such a fascinating and worthwhile figure for us to spend time with. In our last episode of Tides, we talked about what it took to bring Charles into existence namely his illustrious, exalted, borderline incestuous ancestry, which brought together several of the most renowned and rapacious medieval dynasties. That was what made Charles the heir to everything. The structural tendency toward dynastic consolidation, more and more claims to territories and rights concentrated in fewer and fewer hands, was one of the defining features of late medieval politics. With Charles, that structural tendency collided head-on with the accidents of fate and fortune. The Habsburgs of Austria, the Valois Dukes of Burgundy, and the Trastamaras of Castile and Aragon all met in Charles himself. He was the physical embodiment of centuries of both dynastic politicking and unforeseeable contingency. Well into his technical adulthood, Charles's ancestry, and the people his adult guardians put around him, dictated the vast majority of what happened in his life. Even as a king and newly minted emperor, his advisors and his family's past made his life what it was. His grandfather, Maximilian, his aunt, Margaret, his most important guardian, the Lord of Chievre, these were the people who shaped the young man in his world. So that's what we focused on last time. But we also talked a bit about Charles himself, the young man's personality, his talents, and what he did as he began to emerge from the control of others. As you'll recall, his gifts were not especially striking. Charles wasn't the Ottoman Sultan Mehmet the Conqueror personally planning the siege of a world city at the age of 20. This was still an age when teenaged rulers made names and legends for themselves. Charles did none of that. Instead, he inherited and only slowly began to make major decisions for himself. Even those decisions early on were not especially striking. The first of those, and it really was his choice, even if he was pushed into it by his grandfather Maximilian and his advisors, was paying the necessary cost to buy the throne of the Holy Roman Empire. Old Emperor Maximilian, one of the more colorful characters of the time, died in January of 1519. That left open the position of Holy Roman Emperor, which he had occupied for the past 26 years. Maximilian had already spent years trying to secure the throne for Charles, who was already King of Castile, Aragon, Naples, and Sicily. That was in addition to a whole passel of territories in the Netherlands, like Flanders, Luxembourg, and a bunch of others. So why go to all the trouble of buying the Holy Roman Empire as well? Being emperor wasn't like being king of one of the rising kingdoms of Europe, with their increasing financial and military muscle and political coherence. The empire remained a patchwork of duchies, counties, margraviates, lordships, free cities, and bishoprics. The emperor's real power over this patchwork was limited. He had to ask extremely independent-minded imperial diets for taxes, which they were reluctant to give. In theory, the emperor had a great deal of legal authority, but he had nothing like the sophisticated bureaucracies emerging elsewhere that would have allowed him to put that authority to real use. The emperor still claimed theoretical overlordship in Italy, a relic of a long past age, but no emperor had succeeded in doing much of anything with those claims in more than two centuries. 
In sum, an astute observer could be forgiven for looking at this huge and incoherent swath of territory from the borders of Hungary to the Rhine, Austria to the North Sea, and see it as more trouble than it was worth. Some of Charles' ministers said as much. They tried to convince him to abandon the project. But there were three linked reasons why Charles ended up borrowing an eye-watering sum of money from the Fuggers of Augsburg and a few other bankers to purchase the throne. First, and this was far from irrelevant, old Maximilian and Charles himself saw the throne as something that belonged to the Habsburg dynasty by right. Second, as troublesome as the empire was, the emperor did theoretically have a wide array of powers. The right emperor might be able to bend the lords of Germany, its free cities, and its bishops to his will and toward a common purpose or even reestablish rule over wealthy, sophisticated, and fragmented Italy as well. Charles could be that emperor, or so he, his grandfather, and his advisors all thought. Finally, the other real contender for the empire was Francis I, King of France, a strapping and accomplished young warrior king with all the resources of Europe's most powerful kingdom behind him. It wasn't so much that acquiring the empire would benefit Charles as that losing it to Francis could be the end of Habsburg rule in Austria, the Netherlands, Naples, and even Spain itself. An English ambassador put it like this at the time, quote, in this election consisteth his prosperity and for the default of that, his downfall. Basically, losing the imperial throne was the pathway to far worse outcomes. And so Charles transacted his expensive business and outbid Francis for it. Just 19 years old, the King of Spain added another substantial title to his collection. The title, Emperor, by which he would be known for now and for all of posterity. The future looked bright. Let's take a moment to understand Charles's position at the beginning of his reign, the point at which he actually began doing things. The scale of the resources available to him is hard to fathom was certainly unmatched by any prior ruler. He was king of Castile and Aragon, which were large and wealthy kingdoms in their own right. United together, as Spain, under Charles's rule, they were perhaps the second most potent polity in Europe. Decades of continuous warfare and highly competent personal rule had honed Castile and Aragon into a financially sophisticated and militarily potent force. The New World possessions were just beginning to bear lucrative fruit. Charles was also king of Naples and Sicily. While not as tightly organized and governed as Spain and home to a lot of fractious nobles, Naples was still wealthy and extensive. Neapolitan taxes could fund many worthy projects for an ambitious ruler like Charles. Next came Charles's Burgundian possessions, those bequeathed to him by his Valois ancestors and protected for decades by his grandfather Maximilian. These included the Low Countries, Flanders, Brabant, Eno, and Holland, one of the wealthiest and most densely populated parts of Europe along with a whole bunch of other territories like Luxembourg, Palatine Burgundy, and Artois. He also held Austria and the hereditary Habsburg lands in Central Europe, the direct control of which, but not formal ownership of, Charles soon passed to his younger brother Ferdinand. Then, of course, there was the empire, the patchwork of territories encompassing most of modern Germany, which also included Bohemia and pieces of the Low Countries as well. Charles's Austrian territories were part of the empire. So was Palatine Burgundy, also known as Franche-Comté, in what's now eastern France. Flanders was half in the empire and half out, just to give a sense for how bewildering this could be. This fits in with our broader discussion of state-building in this period. 
Remember, every polity in Europe at this point was less a top-down, unified state than a mishmash of various territories, each with its own laws, institutions, and power brokers, the rule of which happened to come together in a dynastic figure. There was a spectrum of patchworkiness, though. England was rather more uniform than France, which was in reality a jumble of duchies and lordships, some of which belonged directly to the crown and some of which didn't. Spain was also a mishmash. The king of Aragon, for example, really held the crown of Aragon, which was a composite of Aragon proper, the county of Barcelona, the kingdom of Valencia, and the principality of Catalonia, along with some overseas territories. Each of these was, again, an amalgam of smaller units that did not themselves necessarily fit together all that cleanly. The empire was the patchworkiest of them all. It took the principle of fragmentation to its logical conclusion. Its overarching institutions were weak. Each individual piece usually did as it liked, and the emperor was often helpless to enforce his will, whatever that might have been. This is essential to remember when we consider Charles and his position. If, on paper, he was an incredibly powerful ruler with a huge array of lands, rights, revenues, and resources to draw on, in practice, he didn't rule anything especially coherent. Every one of his fancy titles, no matter how grand, was an expression of a complicated puzzle. His subjects had their own ideas about what Charles should be allowed to do and what their role would be in his grand designs. These were the structural constraints under which Charles operated, and even from the very beginning, he faced challenge after challenge after challenge. If Charles's life often seems like he whiplashed back and forth from triumph to disaster, back to triumph, and then back to disaster with staggering speed, well, that's because it did. This is the basic template for understanding his reign. Two problems immediately confronted Charles following his first real triumph, his election. No sooner had Charles departed for Germany to claim his new throne when his Iberian possessions exploded in rebellion. The Comuneros in Castile and the Germanies in Valencia posed a serious threat to Charles. They channeled deep frustrations with both the existing political system in general and with Charles's recent decisions in particular. We mentioned those last time, including tone-deaf appointments, snubbing powerful political figures, and a general lack of understanding of his new kingdoms. In Castile, the Comuneros seized control of major cities. They tried to pull old Queen Juana out of seclusion to use her as a figurehead against her son. They were only crushed by the open use of military force. Charles was surprisingly merciful, though. He pardoned practically all of the large number of rebels. In Valencia, it likewise took a royal army to destroy the rebels. But by contrast, Germaine de Foix, old King Ferdinand's widow and Charles's new regent in Valencia, was a lot harsher than Charles had been. She personally ordered at least 100 and perhaps as many as 800 executions to make it clear who was in charge. The second of those problems was less immediately obvious than open rebellion, but it was far more damaging in the long run. Shortly after Charles arrived on the rocky Asturian coast to claim his new kingdoms, a troublesome Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther hammered his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. At that point, with Maximilian still ruling the Holy Roman Empire, the growing clamor for reform within the church was not yet Charles's problem, not exactly. But after his election, it rose to the forefront of his concerns. One of the things I've tried to stress over the years in talking about the early Reformation in general and Luther in particular is how fast things happened. Luther posted the 95 Theses on October 31st, 1517. He was condemned as a heretic in May of 1521, the Diet of Worms, with Charles himself presiding. In the intervening three and a half years, 
Luther went from a fairly standard, if articulate and hard-nosed reformer and academic, to the most famous man in Europe. He was a popular author read by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. In that time, Luther's ideas had evolved from reform of the church to outright rejection of its authority and some of its most basic precepts. It's not a coincidence that the period in which Luther's views spread like wildfire throughout the Holy Roman Empire and beyond also happened to be the three-year stretch in which the attention of authorities was focused elsewhere. This was when Maximilian was trying to get Charles elected before his final illness. The electors were playing off Francis and Charles against each other to get a bigger payout. And Charles himself was far away in Spain. He was trying to correct his early mismanagement and build some trust with his new Spanish subjects. In sum, all of the secular authorities who might have put a lid on Luther early on were otherwise occupied. By the time they took action, it was already too late. The printers had discovered that the reformers were big, reliable business. Their works had found an audience. The terms of engagement had changed. This matters for a few reasons. First, the seeds sown in that first period of inaction soon blossomed in the form of the German Peasants' War, one of the major disasters of this period. Second, it was a preview of Charles's reign as a whole. He simply couldn't handle everything, everywhere, all at once. That wasn't due to his personal shortcomings, such as they were. It was a matter of how fractious, fragmented, and divisive his territories really were. How could any one person, no matter how well-informed and knowledgeable and properly advised, make any decisions, much less the right ones? Things were bound to fall through the cracks. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Wondery, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Wondery to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash Wondery. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. If all Charles had to worry about was an ongoing set of rebellions in Spain and a troublesome Augustinian monk stirring up religious trouble in the Holy Roman Empire, well, that would have been plenty for an enterprising young monarch to deal with. But that wasn't everything. Far from it. The most serious threat Charles faced in May of 1521, even as he was signing the decree that made Martin Luther an outlaw and his loyalists were waging open war against the Comuneros, came from the King of France, Francis I. 
Francis wasn't happy about having his designs on the Holy Roman Empire thwarted. Of all Charles' antagonists over the course of his long and adversary-filled reign, none of them posed as consistent, as thorny, or as formidable a challenge as the King of France. He plagued Charles for decades. Francis, like Charles, was everywhere. He had a hand in practically every bad thing that happened to the emperor, from the Italian wars to stoking the flames of the Reformation in Germany to coordinating an alliance with the Ottoman Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. So, who was this guy? Well, like Charles, he came to the throne early in life, and, like his great enemy, his status as the heir to the throne had been cemented early on. He was four years old in 1498, when his cousin, Charles VIII, hit his head on a doorway and died, without a direct male heir. Francis's father's cousin, Louis XII, was both the leading nobleman in the kingdom and the closest male relative of the now-deceased king. But Louis didn't have a son who could follow him either, despite a great deal of trying. As luck would have it, Francis was actually his closest male living heir. This had been clear since the beginning. When Louis ascended to the throne in 1498, he had already assumed that the four-year-old Francis would be his heir. That was how the youngster was raised, as the heir presumptive. But unlike Charles, a cloud of uncertainty always hung over Francis's future relationship to the throne. If Louis ever had a son, and his wife, Anne of Brittany, was pregnant eight times before her death in 1514, well, then Francis would be cut out of the line of succession. This forced Francis to be more active and more involved in political affairs in his early life than Charles was. He moved to court at age 14 in 1508. He went on his first military campaigns as a teenager. He was just 20 when Louis finally died at age 53, reportedly worn out by his sexual exertions with his new 18-year-old wife, Mary, and Francis ascended the throne. Like Charles, Francis was reasonably well-educated. He learned Italian, Spanish, and Latin in addition to French, though, as with his adversary, his skills in the universal language of the educated, Latin, were pretty poor. Still, Francis had a lifelong love of learning. He actively supported artists and scholars, including Leonardo da Vinci. If not an intellectual himself, Francis understood their value, not least for burnishing his reputation. Most of Francis's education focused around the physical and the martial. Remember, kings were supposed to be warriors, nowhere more so than France, the cradle of chivalry and home to the finest men-at-arms in Europe. This was where Francis really excelled. He was tall and strong even as a youth, had broad shoulders below a reasonably handsome face that featured a prominent nose. The heir excelled at riding and jousting in the various games young noblemen played to hone their bodies and prepare themselves for war. A big, strapping, belligerent young man, when already schooled in the harsh and uncertain politics of dynastic rivalry, had become king of France. Immediately after taking the throne in 1515, Francis showed that belligerence. He invaded Milan to press the long-standing French claim to the duchy within mere months. Facing the Swiss at the Battle of Marignano later that year, Francis held personal command as his army crushed the vaunted Swiss pikemen. Showing substantial foresight, he didn't pursue the defeated Swiss. Knowing that he'd need their services as mercenaries, he instead paid them off, securing a strong future relationship. On top of that, the rich duchy of Milan belonged to him. He had just turned 21 years old, and he had already won a massive victory, taken a key piece of territory, and showed some real political acumen. That was who Charles was up against. Even as the ink was drying on the Edict of Worms, the proclamation that declared Martin Luther an outlaw in May of 1521, Francis was on the move. Not personally, not yet, 
he needed some plausible deniability to get around a few troublesome oaths he'd sworn. Instead, he funded an army that invaded Charles's lands in Navarre in northern Spain, and a second army that crossed the River Meuse to attack the emperor's duchy of Luxembourg. These were the opening salvos in a fight between the two men that would go on for the rest of their lives. Charles got the upper hand almost immediately. His forces in Italy routed the French at Bicocha in 1522, then got a rather unexpected boom. Francis badly mismanaged his relationship with one of his key nobles, a guy named Charles, Duke of Bourbon. Bourbon got mad, tried to organize a coup against Francis, and failed. But he did defect to Charles. This was a useful cudgel for the emperor to wield against his adversary, and Bourbon led Charles' army in an invasion of Provence in 1524. In the best case here, Charles might even succeed in unseating his rival and placing an ally on the throne of France. But Francis was far from done. He drove Bourbon back and personally led an army across the Alps toward Milan late in 1524. Milan itself fell to Francis, and the king laid siege to the city of Pavia, bottling up an imperial garrison. It looked like the whole duchy would fall, and with it, Charles's whole position in northern and central Italy. Charles' supporters weren't optimistic. Your majesty must resolve to accept a defeat as you would a victory, wrote an ambassador to the emperor in February of 1525. His troops were short of money. The Spaniards were growing mutinous. Some of the Germans were simply packing up and heading for home. If something were going to be done, it would have to be soon. Charles got lucky. Francis made a serious mistake. He pulled his troops out of their fortifications around Pavia and met the attacking imperial army in open battle. Spanish arquebusiers scythed through the French men-at-arms with gunfire. Francis himself was surrounded. The king fought hard. He personally killed several of his assailants, but his horse was killed and he was pinned underneath. A few Germans nearly finished him off, but he managed to survive, albeit stripped of all but his shirt. The king of France was a captive of the emperor. All that is left to me, Francis wrote the night of the battle, is my honor and my life. The Battle of Pavia was the most crushing defeat suffered by a French army since Agincourt in 1415, and the worst it would experience for the next two centuries. Charles was ecstatic. The King of France is a prisoner in my power, and we won the battle? He asked the courier who delivered the message to him in Madrid two weeks later, scarcely believing his ears. This was the greatest opportunity he would ever have. Charles de Lannoy, his commander on the scene at Pavia, told him as much. Quote, God gives each man one good harvest in their lifetime, and if they fail to bring it home, there is a risk they will never see another one. I do not tell you this because I think your majesty will let this opportunity slip, but because whatever you decide to do should be done quickly. Things would never look better for the emperor. With the king of France captive, he could dictate terms to his greatest foe. He could consolidate his victory in Italy. He could even invade France itself and reclaim the Duchy of Burgundy that had belonged to his great-grandfather, Charles the Bold. Everything seemed possible. And then, in remarkably quick fashion, it all went south. Actually, there had been trouble on the horizon for quite some time. Remember, Charles was almost bankrupt at the moment of the Battle of Pavia. His troops hadn't been paid in ages. A massive peasant rebellion was underway in Germany, the largest anywhere in Europe since 1381. His brother Ferdinand, whom Charles had dispatched to Austria to keep an eye on the family lands and generally represent him in the empire, besieged his brother with requests for aid. Charles ignored them. He hoped that his brother could handle things on his own. Ferdinand did, 
But the German princes slaughtered tens of thousands of peasants in the process and laid waste entire portions of the country. That was just one of the things on Charles's plate in the aftermath of Pavia. The most important of these priorities was securing a settlement with Francis in return for the king's release. It took months as Francis stalled for time, dithered, and played Charles as best he could. In the meantime, Francis's formidable mother, Louise of Savoy, kept a tight handle on things in France and searched for a way of leveraging Charles into releasing her son. Louise was a pretty cool customer. When Charles wrote her a letter in his own hand, setting initial terms for Francis's relief, she simply wrote back that his demands were excessive and exorbitant, that she would not give up even one foot of land in France, and that she stood ready to defend the realm herself. Diplomacy was the tool at Louise's disposal, and she wielded it in secret against Charles with the utmost effectiveness. Francis was eventually released on March 17, 1526, a little more than a year after Pavia. In that time, Charles's entire advantage, the single harvest of a lifetime Lenoy had mentioned in his dispatch, had completely disappeared. Francis agreed to terms that, on paper, were incredibly onerous. He gave up the Duchy of Burgundy, the long-lost patrimony of Charles's Valois ancestors. He abandoned his claims on Naples and Milan, and he handed over his two sons, his heirs, as surety for his pledge. Now, unfortunately for Charles, the King of France had absolutely zero intention of keeping his promises, whether his treasured sons were hostages or not. It's unclear why Charles ever believed him in the first place. All of the experienced political operators in Europe thought the emperor was making a huge mistake. The English chancellor, Cardinal Wolsey, wrote that much of what Francis had promised wasn't actually in his power to give. The Pope, Clement VII, reportedly said that Francis, quote, will only execute those things that must take effect before his release, such as the surrender of his sons, and postpone all the other things until after his liberation, and then he will not do them. Clement was right. Francis went back on his word the moment he crossed the border. Even worse, in the meantime, Louise had assembled a powerful alliance, the League of Cognac. France, Florence, Milan, Venice, and Pope Clement VII. Together, they were capable of bringing the war to Charles on multiple fronts. The emperor had enemies, enemies everywhere, and Louise turned them all against Charles with shocking ease. Things got worse. Suleiman the Magnificent was on the move toward Hungary with a potent force, and Charles's brother-in-law, Louis, the king of Hungary, was begging him for aid. Charles had none to offer. He thought of a few possible solutions, even selling toleration to the Lutherans in Germany in return for aid against the Ottomans, but nothing came of it. Even Pope Clement, who was actively fighting a war against Charles in Italy, sent more funds to help the Hungarians than Charles did. This was maybe unavoidable for the supposed defender of Christendom, but it created enormous problems for the emperor down the line. Louis fought and died on his own at Mohac, leaving the Holy Roman Empire and Charles's hereditary lands in Austria open to invasion from the most powerful state of the day. Those were yet more seeds that would bear fruit in just a few years' time. Before that, though, Charles had to turn his attention toward the deteriorating situation in Italy. Strangely enough, it wasn't deteriorating because he was losing battles. Charles had plenty of soldiers in Italy, good ones, including Spanish veterans and experienced German Landsknechts recruited and marched south over the Alps by the old mercenary commander Georg von Frunsberg. What he didn't have was money. Some of the Spaniards hadn't been paid in years. The Germans refused to keep fighting in the absence of pay. Georg von Frunsberg had an apoplectic fit when his soldiers mutinied. 
the Lansknechts and Spanish professionals wouldn't obey Charles de Lannoy, who was supposed to be in charge. The Duke of Bourbon managed to get them in line, but only by promising them a rampaging march south through Italy toward Rome. They devastated the countryside and eventually sacked Rome itself in May of 1527, committing all sorts of awful atrocities in the process. Now, in the short term, this was not ideal for Charles, but it could have been worse. He now had Pope Clement, his enemy, in his possession, just as he'd once held King Francis. But he still didn't have enough money to pay the troops. He nearly lost Naples to a French army the following year. The war dragged on for two more exhausting, draining years, costing enormous amounts of money and thousands of lives for little real gain. Francis formally renounced his claims to Naples and Milan, as he had before, and paid a cash ransom for the return of his sons, but nobody really thought the wars were over. Nothing had been solved. Charles had spent more than two million ducats just of his Spanish revenues in Italy since 1522. While he had technically won, nobody looked much like a winner. Ironically, for all of Charles's genuine concern over the unity of Christendom, the fact that he held Pope Clement prisoner made Henry VIII of England split with the church inevitable, since that fact made a divorce with his first wife, Charles's aunt, impossible. To make matters worse, much worse, the Ottomans were once again on the move. In the summer of 1529, a huge army led by Suleiman himself made its way toward Vienna, the center of the Habsburg lands in Austria. This wasn't just a strategic nightmare. It was a personal challenge from the most powerful ruler of the age, Suleiman, to the man he perceived as his rival, Charles. Vienna held, but barely. Months of siege, thousands of lives lost, devastation across the Habsburg lands, all of it was bad. And the amount of funding required to handle yet another front of warfare was staggering. The efforts involved just to keep a handle on Charles's existing lands would only grow larger in the coming years. By the fall of 1530, Charles had been emperor for 11 years. In that time, he had spent eye-watering sums of money on battlefields from Spain to the Low Countries to Austria to Italy. Sure, he had won some victories, but he was barely keeping his head above water. His latest headache was an attempt at an agreement with the German reformers at the Diet of Augsburg. But despite being present in Germany, he could barely bring himself to attend its sessions. The years to come might have triumphs of their own, but in the end, they would be no kinder. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Suleiman the Magnificent's failed challenge at Vienna was the beginning, not the end, of yet another phase of the incessant warring that defined Charles's life. 
he couldn't have avoided it even if he'd wanted to. Again, there was the position of the Habsburg hereditary lands in Austria and the small matter of his imperial throne in Germany, which obligated him to take the lead in defending Central Europe. On top of all that, Charles's brother, Ferdinand, got himself elected king of Hungary and Bohemia in the aftermath of Mohacs. Charles relied on Ferdinand to act as his proxy during his long absences from Germany. Ferdinand was tactful, patient, and politically skilled, many things that Charles was not especially, and the two suited each other. So did their interests. Remember how important the dynasty was to Charles. His Aunt Margaret and his grandfather Maximilian had drilled that into him from early childhood. The Habsburgs, both Charles and Ferdinand, were now fully committed to Central Europe for the foreseeable future. This was the impetus for the beginning of a long, draining, and vicious conflict with the Ottomans. It would last for the next several centuries, and eventually reach everywhere from North Africa to Greece and beyond. While Ferdinand was manning the front lines of Hungary, Austria, and Bohemia against the Ottoman menace, the real protagonists were Charles and Suleiman. As with Charles and Francis, it's worth considering the similarities and contrasts between the emperor and the sultan. Suleiman, like Charles, had been intended from childhood to one day rule. Both were pious and well-educated, somewhat quiet or even taciturn by nature, not bragging show-offs like King Francis or old Maximilian. Both knew that war was their fundamental duty as rulers, but their resources, approach, and goals were much different. So were their territories. Suleiman inherited a coherent, centralized empire from his father, Selim the Grim. The Ottoman state had a powerful standing army built around the Janissaries and the household Sapahis, cavalry. Its bureaucracy was efficient. So was the tax system. Now, regional differences did matter a great deal, not least because of the religious beliefs of the empire's subjects, but there was a great deal of institutional uniformity and direct control over resources and capabilities. Charles, by contrast, ruled a diverse and fragmented set of territories, each with its own institutions and constituencies that had to be managed. Turning them toward any sort of common purpose, even self-preservation, was a Herculean task. The empire was the most fragmented of all, and that was the edge of Charles's lands most directly facing the Ottoman threat. All of this was a recipe for conflict on an enormous scale, pitting two very different rulers and two very different collections of territories and institutions against one another. After the Ottoman siege of Vienna in 1529 and the end of the League of Cognac phase of the Italian wars, Charles mostly turned his attention toward war with the Muslim world. The goal of advancing Christian unity as a universal ruler had always been a major part of Charles' sense of himself and his role as king and emperor. It's just the pesky things like self-interest, competing incentives, and the sheer bloody complexity of European politics had repeatedly gotten in the way of Charles' high-minded goals. No matter how much he'd wanted to put on his crusading hat and go off to fight Muslims like a good universal Christian ruler was supposed to do, the incessant conflicts with France and the Pope, which, yikes on the good Christian ruler part, had prevented him. But then the situation changed. The Ottomans launched yet another major campaign towards Central Europe in 1532. While this was targeted at Vienna, it never got there, but it did make substantial headway in bringing parts of Hungary under Ottoman rule. Suleiman made this a personal challenge. Quote, the king of Spain has proclaimed for a long time that he wants to act against the Turks. And now, by the grace of God, I am advancing with my army against him. 
If he is a man who has balls and courage, let him come and draw up his army in the field, ready to fight with my imperial host. The issue will be whatever God wills. Charles arrived with an army to face off against Suleiman, but the emperor refused to meet the sultan in open battle. This might not have been the belligerently chivalric path of a block-headed nobleman, but it showed some real strategic and tactical sense. Why should Charles risk total defeat on the battlefield when he could simply wait them out? Vienna was a long way from Istanbul. Assembling a formidable army to face the Ottomans was expensive, and Charles paid dearly for that. And letting the Ottomans devastate the countryside of his hereditary lands was humiliating and expensive in its own way. But neither of those things was as bad for Charles as getting cornered on some muddy battlefield by Janissaries and losing his head. The result of this round of clashes was an unfavorable treaty signed in Constantinople in 1533. Ferdinand gave up his claims to most of Hungary, and he and Charles agreed to pay a substantial amount of tribute. Again, that was all bad, but not as bad as a crushing defeat would have been. The theater of battle simply moved elsewhere after that. The new arena was the Mediterranean, and especially North Africa. Suleiman the Magnificent found an admiral, an experienced corsair named Haydedin Barbarossa. Barbarossa had ruled the port of Algiers for decades, using it as a base from which to ply the sea lanes and raid the coastlines of the Mediterranean. He had taken slaves and plunder everywhere from Cadiz in Spain to Messina in Sicily, Provence, Tuscany, the Adriatic coast of Italy. Barbarossa's long, lean galleys, driven by oars pulled by slaves, could appear anywhere and wreak untold havoc. Barbarossa grew even more dangerous when Suleiman handed him command of an Ottoman fleet, which the wily corsair promptly used to capture the port of Tunis in 1534. This was just a few days' sail from Charles's lands in Sicily and Naples. Charles couldn't let that stand. His self-interest in safeguarding his lands met his self-conception as a universal Christian ruler, one who was supposed to do his utmost to make war against the Muslim foe. Tunis would be his target in the spring and summer of 1535, and the emperor turned all his vast resources toward the task. For the moment, everything aligned. And in that moment, Charles's true capabilities became obvious. Spanish arquebusiers, experienced Italian mercenaries, Lansknechts from Germany, Genoese ships, all of it paid for by the financial muscle of Charles's Spanish kingdoms and covered by German bankers. That was what Charles could summon when he wasn't beset by a thousand problems at once. 26,000 fighting men on 400 ships, with perhaps another 25,000 sailors crewing them, all made their way across the Mediterranean from Barcelona to Tunis. The campaign was a stunning success. Charles led it in person, the first time he had risked himself on the battlefield, yet another contrast with Francis and Suleiman, and showed substantial personal courage over the course of the campaign. Tunis soon fell, and it was a genuine victory for the emperor. He had backed up his pretensions to universal Christian rulership and made himself, as his propaganda put it, tamer of Africa and destroyer of the Turks. Thanks to the printing press, Charles made sure that everybody in Europe knew what he'd accomplished. But as was always the case during Charles's reign, the triumph was fleeting at best. Another round of wars with Francis and France was on the horizon. This might have been inevitable, but Charles certainly didn't help. When the last Sforza Duke of Milan died in 1535, shortly after Charles's conquest of Tunis, the emperor decided to claim Milan for himself. It was a key strategic region and a rich one that the Habsburgs had spent the last several decades trying to dominate, 
so why not simply take it outright? Well, because Francis wasn't simply going to let that happen. The result was yet another of the endless rounds of the Italian Wars, a bloody and expensive series of conflicts. To make matters worse, Barbarossa had escaped Tunis and continued his depredations for years to come. The old corsair destroyed a combined Venetian, Genoese, Spanish, and imperial fleet at Prevesa, off the northwestern coast of Greece in 1538. Thousands upon thousands of Christian sailors and soldiers died in the cold waters of the Adriatic. That was just the beginning of Charles' troubles. He made peace with Francis and even went on a goodwill journey to Paris to meet his fellow monarch, but that was only a blip at a bad time. A rebellion broke out in his key holding of Flanders, which led to harsh reprisals overseen personally by Charles. When the Ottoman puppet and rival king of Hungary, John Zapolia, died in 1540, Charles's brother Ferdinand tried to press his claim to the throne. He sent an army to besiege the capital of Buda early in 1541. The siege went poorly, and when Suleiman the Magnificent brought a relief force, he absolutely demolished the Habsburg army in a major battle. To take some of the pressure off his brother, Charles tried to repeat his success in North Africa with an assault on the port of Algiers in the fall of 1541. But this time, it was a disaster of epic proportions. Charles had spent months in Germany trying to broker a deal with the Lutherans at the Diet of Regensburg and return for troops and money to defend Hungary against the Ottomans. Because of that, the campaign against Algiers couldn't get underway until September. The fleet finally arrived off the port in the middle of October and began their assault. All went well enough at first, but within a few days, an enormous autumn storm blew up. Ships sank in the high waves or were dashed to pieces on the rocky shore. Freezing rain ruined the gunpowder for the siege cannon. The storm made it impossible to land any provisions, and the German and Spanish soldiers on the shore went hungry for days. Finally, recognizing that the siege was hopeless, Charles ordered a retreat to the ships just in time for yet another storm to blow up, sinking still more ships. So many of the attackers were taken captive that prices in the slave markets of Algiers fell dramatically because of the glut on the market. Charles barely made it back to Spain alive. If that sounds bad, well, it was going to get worse. Francis and Suleiman maintained a friendly relationship, united by their shared strategic opposition to Charles and their intense personal rivalry with the emperor. Ambassadors regularly passed back and forth between them, as a pair were intended to do in the summer of 1541. But as soon as these ambassadors passed into Charles's lands in Lombardy, Spanish soldiers abducted and murdered them. Charles, informed of what had happened, tried to lie his way out of it. That didn't work. By the following year, 1542, that friendly relationship between Francis and Suleiman had become a full-blown alliance. As the new year dawned, with Charles still reeling from the disaster at Algiers and the crushing defeat in Hungary, Francis and Suleiman launched a series of attacks on Charles' scattered lands. His brother, Ferdinand, was engaged in Hungary, sending an army to retake the capital. A French army conquered Luxembourg. Francis himself made an attempt on Catalonia, while a third force was intended to attack Flanders. By the skin of his teeth, and thanks to a few fortunate missteps of his adversaries, Charles escaped this potential disaster. The tide whipsawed back and forth once again. He invaded and conquered the troublesome Duchy of Gelders in what's now the Eastern Netherlands, the last title Charles added to his substantial collection. In 1544, he agreed on an alliance with the aging and unhealthy King Henry VIII for a joint invasion of France. Henry led it personally in an impressively wide suit of armor made to accommodate his increasing girth 
and together, Charles and Henry nearly succeeded in capturing Paris. Francis sued for peace, and this ended the last war between those two particular monarchs after nearly three decades of incessant conflict. The cost of all this, as always, was staggering. The only way the emperor could pay for it all was thanks to an overseas windfall. We haven't talked about this much in the last two episodes, but more than anything else, it was the conquest of the great New World empires that allowed Charles to continue to finance his incessant fighting. Sometimes that connection was direct. The Tunis campaign of 1535, for example, was directly paid for with a treasure that had been intended for the ransom of Atahualpa, the last Inca emperor, prior to his murder at the hands of Francisco Pizarro. The profits of Hernán Cortés's brutal conquest of Mexico had helped fund the armies that eventually captured King Francis at Pavia. Indirectly, the royal taxes on New World treasure provided a steady source of revenue that could either be tapped at once or mortgaged to the Genoese and Augsburg bankers in return for ready cash. This was, quite literally, blood money. Charles saw it as a windfall from God. The thousands upon thousands of people who died at the hands of the conquistadors, from introduced diseases, or from rampant cruelty in the aftermath were presumably not as convinced of that divine inspiration. Still, even those staggering amounts of treasure were never enough to give Charles more than a momentary respite. There was always another enemy, another campaign, another disaster to be forestalled or managed. After his last run-in with Francis, the emperor turned his attention to the German Protestants, the princes of the Schmalkaldic League. While publicly negotiating with them, giving the impression of good faith, in private, Charles assumed it would come to war. He recruited troops and made preparations, and didn't try especially hard to come to an agreement with them at the Imperial Diet of Regensburg. In 1547, he crushed the princes in open battle at Mühlberg in Germany, with an army comprised almost entirely of Spanish veterans. When not totally occupied, the emperor could bring overwhelming force to bear on any opposition. The trouble was how little that was the case, and fate swung back the other direction once again. In the aftermath of Mühlberg, when Charles was riding high, he lost control of the strategic situation once more. He authorized one of his subordinates to make war against the Corsairs of North Africa, led by Turgut Reis, the successor of Hayreddin Barbarossa. While initially successful, Turgut, who was an Ottoman vassal, fled to Istanbul and asked Suleiman for help in regaining what he'd lost. The result was yet another explosion of violence in the Mediterranean. That wasn't all. One final round of warring between Charles and France, led by its new king, Henri II, was in the offing. The German Protestants weren't done yet either. They allied themselves with Henri, which meant that war on a number of fronts simultaneously was inevitable. Once more, Charles would be stretched to the breaking point. But this time, there was no miraculous victory or escape. Charles was completely bankrupt. He had no money to hire mercenaries or buy off the Protestant princes of Germany. The city of Metz, an imperial stronghold in what's now eastern France, opened its gates to the French. Augsburg, home of Charles's indispensable bankers, did the same for the Protestant princes. Unsurprisingly, in the current situation, the bankers wouldn't lend to Charles. Charles was bottled up in Innsbruck, Austria, with Protestant forces approaching. They arrived so fast that Charles left his palace by one door as Protestant soldiers entered through another. The emperor fled south over the Brenner Pass to remote Carinthia, where he tried to regroup and rearm. Even his brother, Ferdinand, abandoned him. Charles had previously promised that the empire would pass to Ferdinand's son on his death, 
but he had double-crossed Ferdinand, trying to get his own son and heir Philip into the driver's seat. Now, Ferdinand told Charles, either he would live up to his promise or Ferdinand would join the Protestants against him in war. 1552 was the most expensive year of Charles's reign. He spent almost 3.7 million ducats, some 2.4 million of it borrowed from a variety of bankers. I've mentioned costs over and over again in today's episode. Now, after decades of building a financial house of cards, things reached their logical conclusion. Charles raised one more army and set it to the task of retaking Metz, a key strategic base on the corridor linking Charles's German lands to the Netherlands, but he failed miserably over a vicious winter siege. By this point, Charles was essentially milking Spain for money to pay for his enterprises elsewhere. His son and heir, Philip, repeatedly tried to get him to pay attention to the financial promises he was making. But to no avail. Everything was falling apart. He managed to hold on for a few more years, turning back a French invasion of the Low Countries in 1554. But there was no more money, and there were no more triumphs. Who has changed our emperor so much that we scarcely recognize him? Who has turned his hair white before its time? Who caused all those premature wrinkles and made his lively eyes sad? Who removed the flesh from around his teeth and paralyzed his legs and hands with gout? These were the questions one Spanish professor asked in 1555. The answer was obvious, though. Decade after decade of incessant stress had simply left Charles with nothing left to give. His body was failing and he was worn out. The end had arrived. Charles was ready to hand things over to Philip in Spain and the Netherlands and to Ferdinand and Ferdinand's son, Maximilian, in Germany. Ferdinand secured peace with the German Protestants by signing the Peace of Augsburg, which allowed each prince to choose his and his subjects' religion. Charles signed over his territories in the Netherlands to Philip in October of 1555. He still technically reigned, but no longer ruled as Holy Roman Emperor. Two months after that, he handed Spain and the rest to Philip as well. The emperor was now retired, and he headed back to Spain to live out the rest of his life. At the beginning, so too at the end. Bad weather and tough journeys accompanied Charles as he returned to Spain for the first time in 13 years. He may have been retired, but his many enemies hadn't forgotten him. The Pope, Paul IV, called him, quote, diabolical, soulless, thirsting for the blood of Christians. He had ruined all the states he'd ruled, Paul said, everywhere from the Netherlands to Naples, and he opened legal proceedings accusing the aged Charles of rebellion. None of that mattered to Charles. He was tucked away in a palace that he was busily renovating with gardens and even a sauna. He read, he listened to debates and arguments about interesting topics, and he worked on his memoirs, a fascinating glimpse into the mind of one of the most powerful men of his age. He offered piece after piece of advice to his son, Philip, and to his old advisors. They simply ignored him and set about the work of ruling in his absence. The old emperor finally died on September 21st, 1558, not of any of the ailments he'd acquired over his long career, but ironically of a recent case of malaria that he got in retirement. Triumph, disaster, triumph, disaster, and finally a peaceful death. It was a long, eventful, and momentous life for the last ruler of the Middle Ages and the first of early modernity. Next time on Tides of History, we'll be starting to wrap up our coverage of the early modern period. 
The Siege of Malta in 1565 and the Battle of Lepanto in 1571 were the culmination of decades of rivalry between the Habsburgs and the Ottomans, the dramatic climax of a long and pitiless war. Through the eyes of two composite characters, one from each side, we'll try to understand them with a bit of texture and life. Until then, thanks so much for joining me. Be sure and hit me up if you'd like to chat about anything we've talked about on Tides or something you'd like to see. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman or on Facebook at Patrick Wyman MMA. You can follow the show at Tides History. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to Tides of History on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this right now. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star rating and a review. Tides of History is written and narrated by me, Patrick Wyman. The sound design is by Derek Behrens for Airship. The sound engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Tides of History is produced by Morgan Jaffe. From Wondery, the executive producers are Leah Sutherland and Hernan Lopez. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, from Wondery, this has been Tides of History. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.